You know, I, uh, I love being your pastor for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons is that whenever we gather together like this on Sunday morning, that we're a multi-generational church. I'm not sure if you've thought about this, but every time we come together, there are actually five different generations in the room. I brought a little picture here for you. We have the builders, those of you 71 and over. We have the boomers. We have Generation X. We have Generation Y, that's me and my cohorts, the millennials, we're the reason everything sucks in the world. And then there's Generation Z. And it's, it's fun to represent all of those, but it does present some unique challenges to communicate and lead and do church together with the diversity we represent. And, and part of that is represented in that some of you grew up in a time and an era when you had to be home when your favorite TV show came on. And if you weren't, you just missed it. You started using the phone with this thing called a party line, which wasn't like a party around the phone. It was a shared phone. And then when it came Christmas time, you got a catalog about this thick in the mail. You opened it up, circled things, dog-eared, and then prayed you would get what you had indicated. There's a very different generation that's coming up now And and this generation doesn't even know when our favorite TV shows come on because we just DVR them and binge them on Netflix. Um, We get frustrated when we can't have two-day shipping for what we want. This happened to me last week. I was like, seven days? Are you kidding me? Can't be here in two? And then I don't know if this has started to happen to you, but how many of you in the room get annoyed when someone calls you on the phone? Like, like, why didn't you text me? Like, you have my number. Like, why would you not text me? I find myself texting people that I have their number saying, hey, can I call you? It's weird. I sat around for years waiting for people to call me, and now I'm annoyed when they actually do. With that kind of diversity present in a room like this, I'm constantly reminded that we need different models. That one model will not be a one-size-fits-all thing. And that's part of the reason why this summer looking at Daniel and Esther. Because for some of you, you're going to relate more to Daniel because you grew up in an era in which faith was encouraged or at least affirmed by society. And like Daniel, you moved into a different place and a different era and are living a different experience. And so for you, you may relate to Daniel. But there are others of you that you're going to relate to Esther because the world that we live in now is the only world that you've known. And it's a world that is in places hostile and in places uh, cynical and in places uh, pushing back on faith. And so Esther is, for some of you, going to be the person that you connect with. And that's why we're providing two different models in this series. Some of you might say, yeah, but Scott, isn't Esther like a girl's book? And let me just be honest, Esther is not a girl book. Despite the, the, the volume of writing that's been done on Esther by women... It is a book that is applicable and relevant to all of us. And just last month, I stumbled on a book as I was preparing for this series called Faith Among the Faithless, Learning from Esther How to Live in a World Gone Mad by a Dude. And it's only the second dude that I could find out there who's written on Esther. And what I found was staggering. And I saw Esther in a whole new light. You got to understand, I've got two degrees in the Bible. I'm a pastor's kid, so I was kind of born into expertise on the Bible. And yet I learned things in preparing for the series that I'd never seen before. Because I was still operating from the version of Esther that I was given when I was seven or eight years old. And the truth is, is that I'm not bagging on VeggieTales. For those of you who are VeggieTales lovers, don't send me emails. But Esther is far more like an episode of Game of Thrones than it is VeggieTales. 
And so today, we're going to talk about some things, not salaciously, not crudely, but frankly. Because if the book of Esther was made into a modern-day movie, they would have to edit out significant parts to make it PG-13. When you were a young Jewish child growing up, you had to be of a certain age to read Esther. And I understand why we teach our children age-appropriate material, but the problem is many of you who are no longer seven or eight years old, you're still living with the seven or eight-year-old version of Esther that you were taught 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And it's the reason why you've never engaged with the book. Because you think it's a girl book, or you think it's a book about figuring out your life purpose, and it's so much more. See, many of us connect to Daniel. We know his stories better. But the truth is, is that Daniel never compromised. As we read Daniel's life, we never see any place where he actually compromised his faith, his integrity, his morality, his ethics. And yet we live in a world very differently. And while a lot of us admire Daniel, none of us are like Daniel because all of us have compromised. All of us. And if you say, I haven't compromised, then let your neighbor know so they can scoot two seats over from you before the lightning strikes. (laughs) All of us have compromised, and we live in an age where on a daily or hourly basis, we're tempted to compromise. The two main characters in Esther, Esther and her uncle Mordecai, are profoundly compromised individuals. They don't just have a little bit of compromise, they're profoundly compromised And that's why I find it so fascinating that they're in the Bible. And in the end, we're going to look at Esther. We're going to go, she's a pretty heroic woman. But when we meet her, she's going to be far from a hero. And the book of Esther has created no shortage of controversy across 2,000 plus years of the Bible. Because there are many people who don't believe it should be in the Bible. Because there's the least number of mentions of God in the book of Esther than any other book in the 66. The hiddenness of God is a central theme in the book that we're going to look at over this summer. There's no place where God speaks. There's no place where you even really get an explicit reference to God. And yet his presence and his work is undeniable. We're going to find that even the people who are heroes in the story, their faith is hidden. The people around them didn't even know they had it. There are people in this book who have hidden motives. And at times we're going to go, how could God be real and engaged in the world if he'd allow this to happen? And Mike Cosper, the writer of that book I mentioned before, he made a great observation. He said, even in the darkest moments when God seems absent, we can trust that he hasn't abandoned us. And that's the belief that Esther communicates to us. And this may be something that you need to hear today. Maybe this is the only thing that you need to hear today because of where you're at. Because you feel like God is absent or hidden or disengaged. And even in the darkest moments when God seems the most absent, we can trust. And it's affirmed by Esther's story that he hasn't abandoned us. So the big idea for this first message on Esther is this. If you have your handout when you walked in, you can write this down. That God is always at work even when he seems hidden and we are compromised. God is always at work even when he seems hidden, he feels hidden, and even when we are compromised, maybe even profoundly compromised. 
I'm going to introduce Esther. And as I said last week, this is a multi-week series throughout the summer. We're bouncing back and forth between Daniel and Esther. And so you may go, Scott, you didn't cover that. Well, come back next week or come back in a couple weeks or follow us. We're going to get to it. I can't say everything in one sermon or else I'd miss my birthday dinner tonight and I'm not going to miss that. So let me begin by telling you about the first guy we meet in Esther. His name is Xerxes. In your Bible, his name is Ahasuerus. Xerxes is his Persian name. Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. His name Ahasuerus is a pun uh, on the term headache. And so he's nicknamed King Headache. <laughs> Two reasons why. One, he gives the Israelites a great headache later on in the book. And then two, we'll learn in a little bit about his penchant for drunkenness. And so his headache may refer to his hangover. He's king over a massive empire. Here's a map I brought for you. He's king all the way from modern-day Libya, Egypt, and Sudan, up through Israel, Palestine, and Syria, over Turkey and modern-day Greece, modern-day Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and ultimately into India. It's a massive empire. And his father, Darius, conquered the Babylonians, and they merged their empires together. And that's why Xerxes is referred to as the king of kings, because of his great power and influence. And we learn about him beginning in Esther chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Esther chapter 1. Esther is near the middle of your Bible. So if you have a physical Bible, open up to the middle. You'll get Psalms or Proverbs. Go towards the front. Psalms, Job, Esther. And in Esther 1, this is what we read. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. And the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him because they're preparing to go to war. And so they're all there with him. It says, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So six months, they're planning this war and he's showing off how wealthy and powerful he is. In verse five, it says, and when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Let me describe this to you. Susa is not a small city, tens and tens of thousands of people. And for seven days, the king throws a feast. Everyone in the city is given a goblet. And in that day, it wasn't normal for everyone to have a cup. And the king's um, stewards over his vineyard and wineries were told that anyone in the kingdom could have as little or as much as they could want to drink for seven days. So we're talking about an open bar for the entire city of at least 100,000 people and an open buffet for seven days. Xerxes was pretty popular by the end of that party. In verse 10, we learn what happens next. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, which is Bible speak for he was plastered, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zathar, and Carcass. I did a good job with all those names. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. 
But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. This morning, I want to share with you four lessons from this crazy story. And the first one is this, that resistance is dangerous. Resistance is dangerous. When you're living in a godless, hostile, secular culture, resisting that culture and those powerful figures is dangerous. See, at the end of this time, Xerxes is surrounded by all of these other generals and leaders he's going to go to war with against the Greeks. He's been drinking nonstop for seven days and he calls the queen before him. And there's no shortage of commentary about what it was he asked Vashti to do. Some people say he just wanted her to come out because he thought she was beautiful and it was kind of Miss America. But knowing the kind of person that Xerxes was and knowing the kind of time this was and knowing how much alcohol he has consumed, I tend to go with the more liberal accounts that say that Vashti was summoned to be wearing her crown and only her crown. To be paraded in front of a bunch of drunk, debased men. It's a really uncomfortable moment to read about in scripture because in that time, women, even the king's wife, the queen, were property. And this isn't queen like Queen Elizabeth who ruled the British Empire. This isn't like Queen Cleopatra who ruled the Egyptian Empire. Queen Vashti was a queen in name only and she was property. And so when the king summoned you, you showed up and did whatever he said to do. Until Vashti said, no. And her resistance led her to be exiled. Thrown out. And never heard from again. There's no record of whatever happened to Vashti. All we know is that the scriptures tell us that the king was beyond shocked. And his anger burned within him. And the men surrounding the king realized what could go wrong. And they said, king, you got to deal with this. Because if our wives hear about Vashti and they start treating us the way Vashti treated you, this could go very badly for us. So they basically conspired and got the king to send out a decree that in the same way that the king ruled over every man and woman in the empire, every man ruled over his home. And his wife was his property and his will was supreme. It's a dark beginning to the story. And it's a reminder of what happens when you resist. It's dangerous. Some of you have experienced that. You've resisted people around you and you've experienced ridicule. Some of you may have experienced a limitation in your career. You couldn't move up because you didn't play the right games because of your morals or ethics or your integrity. Some of you have found yourself ostracized in communities because of your faith. And what you need to know is that you are not alone. Not only in the book of Esther, but throughout church history, followers of Jesus have resisted godless empires. In the early church, the church was living in a Roman empire where Roman citizens were expected to get on one knee and say, Caesar is Lord. Not because Caesar was the ruler of the empire, but because Caesar was God. And then these Christians rose up in Palestine. And instead of saying, Jesus, Caesar is Lord, they said, Jesus is Lord. And we hear that and we think theology. 
Caesar heard that and he heard politics. I can't control these people. I can't manipulate them. They serve a higher power than me and that's dangerous. And that's why the early Jews and Christians began to be persecuted because they didn't play by the rules. And resistance was dangerous for them and it was dangerous for the empire. And in the same way that Xerxes squashed Vashti's rebellion, the Roman Empire squashed the Christians. And so let's be honest in this series, as we talk about how do we live faithful to Christ and winsome to culture in our day, there will be moments where we resist. And yes, we can trust ourselves to be cared for by God, but there may be earthly consequences. Resistance is dangerous. Well, that war that Xerxes was planning, he and his men went off to. They took nearly one million Persian soldiers to Greece. They fought the Greeks and they fought valiantly. They even attacked and burned Athens in the Battle of Thermopylae. They were mostly victorious. But this is where we have the events. If you've seen the movie 300, this is where it fits into the story. Before I get angry emails, I'm not endorsing the content of this movie. I'm not recommending you go home and watch it. But for those of you who've seen it, this is where it falls. But ultimately, the Persians, they lose. It's one of the great defeats in ancient history. They were outnumbering the, Jew, the Greeks at least 5 to 10 to 1. But Xerxes had 300 ships that were sunk. And he returned to Persia with his head between his legs. And then it says in Esther chapter 2, that after these things, this war... When the anger of King Ahasuerus was abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. One Jewish commentary says that when he came back from his stupor and realized what he did, he cut off the heads of every advisor who recommended that he get rid of Vashti. Then in verse 2, it says, It's okay. Be patient. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. The second lesson from this crazy story is the human heart has hungers earth cannot satisfy. The human heart has hungers earth cannot satisfy. The king is depressed that he has made this bad decision. And so his advisors, trying to improve his mood, recommend a plan, an idea. And this is one of the places that I think we need to correct some incomplete teaching that many of us got when we were younger. What happens here is an example of government, military, and oppressive power to the extreme. There were 50 million people living in the Persian Empire at this point, And that meant that 25 million women were vulnerable. The officers in the province would go from house to house identifying the most beautiful women. And in the same way that ISIS kidnaps people today, they would kidnap women and bring them to the king's harem in Susa to be a part of this plot. Now imagine being a young woman in that day. 
Imagine being a mother or a father in that day. Giving your daughter up to be used and abused. And then each of these women will be given cosmetics and beauty treatments. And then be sent into the king. And then sent into the other harem where the concubines were. Only to be seen of again if the king wanted them. Because in that day, once a woman had been with the king, she could never be with another man again. That way, another man in the kingdom could not be told, you're better than the king. It's a very different story than the one I grew up with. And to put it frankly, this isn't a beauty contest. It's a sex contest. And thousands of families had their lives ruined because of it. All of this is happening because of the hole within Ahasuerus. He went to war to try to defeat the Greeks who had defeated his father and he couldn't win. He threw a party for seven days to try to please the people in Susa so that he could have their approval and affirmation. He thought he had a great queen, and then when she didn't do what he wanted and she couldn't give him what she wa- he wanted, he banished her and started over again. And he's trying to fill a void within his soul. But the problem is the human heart has longings that earth cannot satisfy. You can try to satisfy it in wealth and power and empire, and sex, and drink, and influence, and the approval of people, but it's like pouring water into a jar that has holes in it. It will never be filled. In Ecclesiastes 3, we read that God has set eternity in man's heart. We have these longings and desires within us that if we try to satisfy them in this world, we will never be satisfied. The writer Augustine said this, thou has made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts is restless until it finds rest in thee. Some of you are here today because of that restlessness. It drove you here today because you've been trying to satisfy a God-given desire in all the wrong places. C.S. Lewis once said that if you find within yourself desires that this world cannot satisfy the only conclusion you can make is that you are made for another world. And that's a hazardous. He's trying to satisfy himself in ways that will never satisfy him. And then we meet a guy named Mordecai in Esther 2. Esther 2 says this. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. The third lesson from this crazy story is the path of least resistance is compromise. The path of least resistance is compromise. Say, Scott, what do you mean? 
Well, Mordecai, his name in Persian means worshiper of Marduk. If we could have that slide on the screen. Marduk is the chief Babylonian god. And so Mordecai is a Jew. He's the father of, he's the, he's the uncle of Esther, her adoptive father. And his name means worshiper of Marduk. He's not somebody who is following God. He's not somebody who's worshiping God. His name means worshiper of a false god. And then in the passage, I bolded this so you pay attention to it. It says there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel. Susa is the city where Xerxes or Ahasuerus' palace is. And the citadel was the center of the city where all power and politics happened. And so Mordecai is claiming a name that's worshiper of Marduk, this false god. And he's at the center of power where no Jew should be. And it's a sign of his profound compromise. He's a Jew living in this foreign world. There's no sign or indication that he's a worshiper of God. And all we can tell is that he's in the middle of this power structure that is devoid of any morality or integrity. And he's claiming the name of somebody who worships another God. And that's why we need to remind ourselves that when God's people face opposition, the path of least resistance is the path to compromise. These were the easiest paths for Mordecai to go down. Claim a Persian name and get involved in protecting yourself. And when you face opposition, whatever it looks like, wherever you are, you need to know that the path of least resistance, the easiest path for you, is going to be compromise. And we live in a world where we like to go down the path of least resistance. We don't prefer the path of most adversity. And Christians are not exempt from this. Some of us feel the temptation to just embrace faithful to Christ in our culture. And what that means is that we're tempted to isolate ourselves. There's some people who are writing today say that, hey, our culture is such a bad place. We should just pull out a culture. Hunker down and write it out. If culture is a stream, we should get out of the stream. But here's the problem. We'll never influence the stream that way. I don't know about you, but if you've ever stood next to a river and tried to scream at the river and get it to move, it doesn't work. And this is how many Christians are trying to influence the culture today. Isolated and yelling. And I don't know anybody who's ever been yelled into life change. On the other side, there are some of us who are tempted to compromise by just being winsome to culture. And that means assimilation. You just get in the river and like a lazy river at a resort, you just kind of go where it takes you. Not influencing it, but being influenced by it. And this is Mordecai's temptation to pursue the approval and affirmation of his culture and just go along with it. But the, the, the other path, the third path, the and path, is the path of transformation, which says, I'm not just going to be faithful to Christ. I'm not just going to be winsome to culture. I'm going to seek to do both and transform the culture like a rock in the middle of a stream that diverts the stream. I'm going to seek to transform this culture I'm a part of. And you go, Scott, how do you do that? Well, the only way I know is to daily depend on Jesus for wisdom and direction. Many of us read the Bible the same way you read the manual for your television. You only bring it out when it breaks. You really have no idea where it is. And when you open it, you want a quick answer. That's not how you build a thriving relationship with Jesus. If you're going to live an and life faithful to Christ and winsome to culture, then on a daily basis, you're going to have to wake up 
and read the scriptures and pray and surround yourself by godly community and listen to the Holy Spirit, God's spirit alive in you. And on a daily basis, say, God, show me how to act. God, show me how to speak. God, show me how to love these people that I don't agree with. God, show me how to be on Facebook and not be just another jerk. Show me how to follow you in a way that is winsome to people. Depend on Jesus may be a cliche in your mind, but to me, it's the only way forward. And it's the way that Mordecai did not choose in the beginning. In the time that we have left, I want to introduce you to Esther. In Esther 2, verse 8, this is what we read. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him, that is Esther, and won his favor. And so he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace as her servants, and he advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, important point, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now when the term came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, when the young women went to the king in this way, Esther was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. So when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, don't worry, we're almost done, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Lesson number four, compromise often happens in our blind spots. Compromise often happens in our blind spots. In the same way that the car you drive has blind spots that make it difficult for you to see, there are blind spots in our lives where we don't see the places where we're compromising. And this is one of the places where I think some of you have a hard time with what we're going to teach on Esther, because I believe that Esther, while victim to this horrible, horrific conscription for the king's pleasure, somewhere along the way decides she's going to take advantage of the situation. And she begins working it. Unlike Daniel, who next week we'll learn about how he was given an opportunity to compromise when it came to what he ate and didn't, Esther eats everything. She does everything. She never says no. No one knows that she's a Jew, and she goes along with the whole thing, and not just goes along with it, she wins. And her plan is the same plan as Haggai, and that is to satisfy the king. And she wins. We don't like our images of biblical heroes to include this kind of compromise, but it does. In fact, I challenge you to go through the Old Testament and outside of Daniel and maybe Nehemiah, almost every hero you find 
is compromised. They have moments that would get them removed from our staff if they didn't. They'd have things in their past that would disqualify them from being an elder. And yet there are heroes. And it says in the passage right here that no one knew that she was a Jew. So not only did she tell no one she was a Jew, but it was impossible to discern from her life that she was a Jew. In the same way for some of you, you have found your way to be such a chameleon in your life that no one knows that you're a follower of Jesus. And if somebody didn't see you here on Sunday, they wouldn't know. If you didn't walk into work with a Bible, they wouldn't know. If you didn't show them your bank statements about how you give money, they wouldn't know. No one knew. Even her name, her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means a myrtle tree, which was a symbol of righteousness in Hebrew. But we only hear her referred to by her name Esther, which means star in Persian, as in Ishtar, the Persian goddess. She's profoundly compromised. And it raises the question, is Esther a hero? I think she is because I know how the rest of the story goes. But if she's a hero, she's not like the Superman that some of you grew up with who was perfect. She's more like the Dark Knight character of Christopher Nolan's movies who is deeply, deeply flawed. And the truth is, most of us are like Esther. We have places where we're compromised in our motives, our attitudes, our actions, and our words. You may connect more with Daniel, but make sure you don't project onto Daniel all of your seeming perfection because all of us have blind spots and all of us have compromised. And so I just invite you in this series to consider which of these models is going to be yours and don't just go to Daniel because you know more of his stories. Consider Esther because there may be something there for you too. Before we conclude the day, I have a couple next steps I want to share with you. And the first one is this. Honestly evaluate where you have compromised in your blind spots. Honestly evaluate where you have compromised in your blind spots. Because if it's in your blind spot, you don't know it's there and you have to go looking for it. And I know our cars are getting fancier and fancier and trying to eliminate blind spots. But I grew up having to turn around and look at my blind spot. And I need people in my life to tell me about my blind spots. About seven years ago, we had some friends over for dinner at our house. And they made us these amazing chilaquiles. If you've ever had them before, they're amazing tortilla chips and beans and fried eggs and enchilada sauce. And oh, it's just, it's amazing. I'm just going to sit here and remember the meal for a second. <laughs> when the meal was done, we were sitting in the living room and we were talking. And my friend Miriam made some comment to me and I said, what did you just say? She said, do you know what your problem is? (laughs) No, but I'd love for you to tell me. (laughs) And she said, you ignore people. She said, Sunday morning at our church, you run around with so much to do and you'll walk into a room and there's one person in the room you need to talk to one person who's important to you, you walk in, you talk to them, you ignore the rest, and you walk out. 
She said, it's obvious that people don't matter to you. I had this massive blind spot. And I was so busy getting my stuff done. I was checking things off a list. Being productive. At things I thought that were important. But missing the point. And I would have never seen that if somebody hadn't had the courage to say, do you know what your problem is? It was a risk for her. Because I could not have received that well. Could have said, get out. But you can ask my wife. It got really quiet in the room. Like it is right now. (laughs) And I said, thanks. I'm not perfect at that. When I get in tunnel vision, I can get really focused. Two weeks ago, somebody came by me at Starbucks. I was sitting next to the window, and they were knocking on the window next to me. I didn't even hear them. I was writing with my headphones on. and da, 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 da. So I'm not perfect at it. But now it's out of my blind spot. I can see it. And this is why we do community groups here at Cornerstone. So that you will put yourself in community with other people who can see your blind spots and speak into them. Because as when you're driving, what's in your blind spot can hurt you. Lesson number two, identify what limits you've placed on God's movement in your life. Identify what limits you've placed on God's movement in your life. Some of you say, Scott, I'm like Esther and I have all these things in my past where I've compromised. I have all these places where no one knows I'm a Christian. I have all these things that are going on that, that disqualify me from being used by God. And what you need to hear is this. You are not alone. You're not alone. And if God can use Esther and Mordecai who are profoundly compromised and their story is still being told nearly 3,000 years later, he can use you too. That's the hope in this story. And then number three, I want you to ask God, where is God pursuing me? Because what we're going to find is that even though Esther and Mordecai were avoiding God, they were running from him. They were compromised. God came for them. And this is the story all throughout the Bible that when we feel like we're far from God, God comes looking for us. Last week, we premiered a song here at Cornerstone. You probably heard it on the radio called Reckless Love. And here are the lyrics. Says, oh, the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, and still you give yourself away. I'm gonna invite the band out, and this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna invite you to connect with the God that's pursuing you. I just have this conviction there are some of us in the room today who are compromised in ways we didn't realize. And you need to come home to the God who's pursuing you with reckless love. And so this morning we blocked off the front so that you couldn't sit here. So that if you wanted to come forward and pray, you could. That while we sing this song about the heart of a God who pursues those who are compromised, you could experience a homecoming with that God. So as the band sings before you move on to whatever you have to do today, I would just encourage you to respond to whatever it is that God spoke to your heart today and allow these words to be sung over you as the truth that this is who God is. 
That even in the places where you've compromised and you've not lived the way that you want to live, even in the places where your past includes things you wish it didn't include, the story of Esther is the story of a God who meets us in the midst of our compromise and who's at work. And he doesn't throw people out because they're too far gone. He goes after them and pursues them. The front is open if you want to come and pray and connect with God. And I just pray that you'd allow these words to be sung over you this morning. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.